Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes are available free of charge, more than 500 and counting. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jeez, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Hey, everybody. Hello. How's it going? This (laughs) is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I am here in Los Angeles. Uh, What did I do today? I went to Home Depot. I'll tell you about it. Let me first tell you about today's guest. It's Robert Gulrich. He is the best-selling author of many books, including A Reliable Wife, and his latest novel is called The Dying of the Light. It's available now from Harper, and it is the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. TheNervousBreakdown.com is my online literary magazine and community. It has its own monthly book club. If you want to join that, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. The way it works is you get a book every month delivered to your door, and then uh, I interview the authors here on this program. So it's a nice uh, experience. It's a cultural experience. Uh, Robert and I had a great conversation over the transom. He was delightful to talk with, and his novel is excellent. And that is coming up in just a bit. Uh, I don't have much to say here at the top of the show. I am ill-prepared for any kind of monologue. All I can tell you is that it's been very busy. I have been traveling for uh, business. I'm on a contract job, or I was on a contract job. So I was gone all last week. I was on the East Coast. It was fun. I can't really talk about it too much. It's one of these things. You know, you can't get into the details of work stuff. I feel a little weird about that. Not that anything weird happened. It was actually fine. It was a lot of work. It was exhausting. I stayed at a Holiday Inn. I'll tell you that. I spent a week of my life in a Holiday Inn for the first time in a long time. So I didn't sleep great. But I got to go, you know, I got up really early just so I could have some time to sort of enjoy where I was. I was in New England. I got to go out in the woods. I Oh, I did get to see Walden Pond for the first time. I forgot to mention that. That feels literary and worth mentioning. I, uh, I incidentally have just recently finished a biography of Henry David Thoreau by uh, Laura Dassau Walls. I think that's her name. 
Yeah. I'm holding it in my hands. It's uh, Henry David Thoreau, A Life by Laura Dassau Walls. And I, I was reading it, and then I got to go to uh, New Hampshire on this business trip, but I flew into Boston. I had some time to kill, so I drove straight from the airport out to Concord. And it's one of these things. I wish I would have had more time to dick around and kind of go through. I wish I could have gone to the Concord Museum. I love transcendentalist history. And uh, Henry David Thoreau, this biography really made me love him. Like I, I had been in, uh, sort of an Emerson guy, and, and I still am. I, mean, I love Ralph Waldo Emerson. And uh, I read this biography of him years ago called A Mind on Fire, which I recommend. And then, uh, you know, I read an, uh, a different Henry Thoreau biography years ago. Can't remember the name of it, but I think it was by the same guy who wrote A Mind on Fire. Just to sort of get my fix. But I didn't realize just how uh, ahead of his time Thoreau was. He's like this this kind of like diminutive figure, not a tall guy, and uh, just sort of intense. Walked a lot, walked everywhere. He was tough. He was a naturalist. He was ahead of his time. Anyway, uh, I recommend the book. I recommend going to Walden Pond. It's lovely. And they have a little, uh, like a replica, uh, like an exact replica of Thoreau's cabin. So I got to look at that. It's pretty touristy now. Or not touristy. I mean, kind of touristy. There's like a gift shop and stuff. And then there, it's also like open to the public and there's a beach and there's kids swimming, like local kids it seemed like. So it's hard to get the, I didn't get like the serene view of the pond that you might get early in the morning or something, but I am glad that I got to go. And then I drove around Concord a little bit. I drove past Ralph Waldo Emerson's house, which I I expected it to be this big museum or something. I expected like, (laughs) expected like hordes of people to be there. And it's just kind of sitting there behind a fence. And I guess you can tour it, but I didn't see anybody there. And it didn't look like it was in the greatest shape either. So I got to see a little bit of Concord. I didn't really fully get to wrap my head around it. But there's a lot of American history and a lot of American literary history that happened there. So I hope that someday in the future I get to spend more time. Anyway. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, Let's get to the program. Robert Gulrich is my guest. His new novel, The Dying of the Light, is available from Harper. It is the official July pick of the TNB Book Club. And I'm very pleased to get to share this conversation with you now. 
Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Robert Gulrich. I never had a dream or a goal except that I thought as a child that I wanted to do something artistic. I think that was my goal. Um, so it was a matter for a long, long time. It was a matter of doing something that was sort of almost artistic, you know, and thinking, well, that's not quite it. Um, and then luckily, <clears throat> when I was 54, I got fired. And um, Why did you get fired? Well, people in advertising do. That's what happens. Um, you get to a stage where you're of a certain age and you make too much money and they cast their eye on somebody who's 30 years younger and $300,000 cheaper and they think, well, he'll do. And so you get underhired and you're out. I mean, it's just one of the fates of advertising. And you sort of know... I remember when I was young in advertising and we would see guys wandering around who were 45 and 50 and we would think, what are those old guys doing hanging around here? <laughs> and then suddenly I was that age and and, uh, and I could see that kind of disdain in the younger kids walking around. And then suddenly one day I was out. Did it, did it come as a surprise? Like, did it, Was it something you were expecting or did it shock you? Um, is it fair to say both? Um, it was not unexpected, but it was a shock, nevertheless. And um, the thing about being fired is that no matter how much you may despise your job, the next morning you wake up and all of your friends and acquaintances and fellow workers are going to to work and making money and you're lying there um, in your bed not earning a dime and it's very it's a very strange feeling and it is rejection you know I mean nobody likes rejection so um, yeah, like this happened to me earlier this year. Like the, the startup that I was working for imploded, and it was just—it was very sudden. You know, it wasn't necessarily unexpected, but all of a sudden, they tell you. And I remember being in that moment, and I looked at them, and I was like, "So wait, I just go home?" <laughs> right, exactly. I just go home. And there was like this pause, and they were like, "Yeah, yeah, that's what happens now." And it was—it was—it uh, was disorienting. Well, that's exactly the feeling in that question. So I just go home. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah, and like I don't um, know. I have I have I have complicated feelings about it. There is part of me that likes being home, but I, you know, you also need to make money. So, so I sat around my apartment for about six months, wailing and moaning, and then I thought, you know, all my life people had told me I should be a writer. And 
I had, in fact, um, written a novel when I was 22, um, which is monumental in its um, uh, in its um, grandeur. Um, and in a good uh, way. Um, and I was going to say, and and um, overwhelming in its um, in its thick-headedness. Um, I like it. I think there's uh, there's there's one copy of it left in the world, uh, and I'm not sure I have it. But anyway, it never got anywhere except that um, my parents read part of it and disinherited me. Um, as they were wont to do in those days. Um, so I went to New York on the bus from Virginia. Um, and slept on a friend's floor for months while I looked for a job and started working in advertising. And advertising is the kind of profession where they suck up people who have great talent, but no particular ambition, if you know what I mean. Um, I mean, their talent is not applied to any particular thing. And they made me a copywriter. And so I did that. And then at 32, I wrote another novel. Um, and... Uh, somebody it's at a place called Summit Books, which doesn't exist anymore, um, offered to buy it. And so I quit my job and flew to Greece. Um, Brilliant career move. <laughs> yeah, and waited for the contract. Um and the contract didn't come and didn't come and didn't come. And I wrote Jim, the editor, and said, uh, where's the contract and the check? And the letter was returned. <laughs> and it turned out that Jim had been fired. And the person who inherited his work, his job, um, didn't like the novel. So there it was. And I had to go back to the agency where I worked with my tail in my hands and say, would you take me back? And they did. But and I want to stop you, though, because as, as, uh, as much as this sounds like a, you know, a, a failed experiment, the trip to Greece did later yield a novel, right? So it, it, was, it, it was fortuitous in its own way. It absolutely did. And, you know, for... For writers and artists of various kinds, I always think there's no such thing as wasted time. There really isn't. So, and I love Greece. I love being there, and I loved everything about it. So, um, so then I just went back to work until, basically, until I got fired. Um, 
and survive the 80s and barely, barely, <laughs> and then um, got fired when I was in, in, I can't remember the year, um, in the 90s. Um, and so I sat around my apartment and then I remembered that I'd started a novel about a year and a half before and I thought well I might as well as long as I'm going to you know grow old and poor and die and die in the streets um, finish try to finish that novel so I did in very short order and it was called Bitter Cold and I had an agent, a great, great classic agent, Elaine Markson, who has now died. Wait, was she married to David Markson? Uh, not, not when I knew her. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm. Maybe I have that wrong. Um, but she was one of the classic, um, brownstone village brownstone second floor walk up agents. Uh, she was very kind um, and very uh, perceptive, and she she was good to me. Um, and she read um, Bitter Cold, and she called me up, and I went in. And she said, I love this novel, but I hate the title. Nobody is going to publish it. Nobody's going to read it. And she said, but I have a much better title for it, and it's in the book. And I said, what? And she said, A Reliable Wife. And, of course, it's the ad that Ralph puts in the book when he's advertising for a wife. Um, he says he's seeking for a reliable wife. Um, and I said, well, I like Bitter Cold much better. It was in the first. It's in the first sentence of the book. The first sentence of the book is it was bitter cold, um, and she said, "Well, have it your way. We'll try." So she tried, and she sent it to about twenty publishing houses, and they all turned it down. And I said, "Well, maybe you're right. Maybe we should call it Reliable Wife." So she, we changed the title and sent it to twenty more publishing houses and waited for 20 more agonizingly slow rejection letters and while I was waiting for all these rejections I wrote a memoir and I wrote it in six weeks wow um, and it was called the end of the world as we know it and finally Elaine called me up and she said I can't sell this book. It's been to 46 publishers, and there aren't any more publishers. That's all there are. Um, and I was disheartened. And um, I said, well, as long as you can't sell the novel, why don't you try to sell this memoir? And... She read it and didn't much like it, but she sold it in a week. And, and it's the end of the world as we know it. 
Yeah. And can you tell listeners, people for people who are listening, can you give um, like a snapshot of the of what the memoir is? It's 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 um it's funny and it's sad and it's about growing up in the South in the fifties and the best part about it to me is that other people who grew up in the 50s often come up to me and say, oh, I remember that um, that uh, cigarette lighter that was on the table. My parents had one too. Or I remember things that, that you describe. People identify very much with the book. And also it's about, it's about, um, I didn't mean for it to be, but it became about child abuse. And um, it found an audience that it was meant to find. uh, And I think to the people who read it, it was deeply touching. And I got many, many letters um, from men um, and the letters often started I've never told this to anybody but hmm. and um, then their stories would unfold and so I was very grateful to have been given the chance to help them um, open up and tell their stories did you have any? I mean, you say that the book, the memoir, wasn't. You didn't intend it as to be as a book about childhood or a child abuse. Um, but obviously, that's the that's the takeaway or the 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 central thing that people talk about in reacting to it, and and certainly in the responses that you got from readers. Um, well, only because it's the most startling thing that happens in the book, and because nobody ever, nobody ever talks about um, the abuse of male children, which is far more widespread than is generally thought. Um, so, yes, I mean, I, 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 I don't know that I set out to tell that part of the story when I wrote the book, but I guess I, I knew that I couldn't get to the end without telling it and still be honest. Hmm. And I think when you tell a mem- when you write a memoir, if you're not honest, it's nothing because if you're not honest, why bother? And uh, did you have any qualms about it at that stage of your life about telling those stories? Were you worried about the the fallout or the response, or did you feel yes, did you feel yes, free to I speak? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. Um, and um, I have a sister and a brother, and they both um, were shocked and didn't speak to me for years. Um. And that was very hurtful. Um, what, they didn't believe it, you? No, they didn't believe me. And they went around for years saying that I was a liar and that I'd made it up. 
And you, and just so listeners are clear, in the book you detail abuse um, that you suffered at the hands of your own father. At the age of four. And your parents both struggled uh, with addiction, with alcohol. So you grew yes. up. You grew up in a house. Uh, I forget how you put it in the book, but I loved it. It was like back when people still had parties. Like there was a time when your parents, uh, in your eyes, were these glamorous people, and they were social, and they were having parties at the house, and there were friends around. But then you also witnessed, um, you know, how dramatically things changed, and and how they declined in in their addiction and in their health. Yes. So I'm curious why you're saying why, why it saddens me to this day. I mean. I can't think of it of it without sorrow. You love your parents and you want them to be good people and more than even more than that, you want them to be good to you. And it is unthinkable that your father would do to you what your father did to me. And the thing about what happened to me is that my mother was there and saw it and stopped it. And then the next day, ironically enough, my aunt's wedding day, uh, and she was married at home, um, I, I stopped my grandmother in the middle of all the preparations and I sat her down and told her everything that had happened. So, and she said, don't ever tell this story to anybody or something terrible will happen to our family. Hmm. So my mother, my father, my grandmother, and I were all locked in this terrible secret. And it, you know, the child is always blamed. And so they came to, despite their love for me, they were afraid of me. And um, they were afraid that I would tell and everything would fall apart. And I, and I felt guilty because I could see them devoured by alcoholism and I felt that it was my fault. So, but the the memoir uh, was published by Algonquin, and during the course of the preparation for publication, I said to Chuck Adams, who is a brilliant editor, um, I said, why don't you take another look at Reliable Wife? which Algonquin had rejected two years before, um, because I don't see what's so wrong with it. And um, he did, and he called me up a week later, and he said, you know, I think we'll publish this book. And I think he and Algonquin were awfully happy that they had made that decision. I was going to say, because that went on to become... A huge, a huge seller. Yeah, it was. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for fifty-three weeks. Wow. Um, and it sold 
well over a million copies. I can't remember exactly how much, but a lot. Did you? Okay, um, so I want to ask you about this because I, you know, five hundred and something interviews uh, of all, you know, of having done that many. I have not talked to too many authors who have sold that many books. <laughs> uh, it's a very rare thing. And so I'm curious about that experience and when you realized that it was happening. Like, were there signs? Did you have a sense of how things were going to happen pre-publication? I know the paperback really took off. Uh, but can you talk a bit about the experience of that and why you think it happened, aside from the book being great? You know, but I, like, do you have any sense of it? Um, I had at the time, because of everything that everybody was saying, a kind of premonition that it was going to happen. And so I fled New York and moved to Virginia because I wanted to be out of the New York literary spotlight when it happened I wanted to live my life in quiet and write my books in peace um, and not become a fixture on the New York cocktail party circuit um, so I just left and then the hardcover sold well and then the paperback came out and the first thing that happened was um, Borders God rest their souls, <laughs> um, bought um, 60,000 copies of the paperback to be their number one book for whatever month it was. And that was the thing, I think, that got it on the uh, bestseller list. And As a paperback. As a paperback. And... Um, as my publisher said, it's a lot easier to stay on the bestseller list than it is to get on the bestseller list. So, um, there's a kind of, uh, momentum that takes over. People see it on the bestseller list and say, oh my Lord, I should read that. And the other thing that happened was, um, that it got popular with book clubs and, there's something like 65,000 book clubs in this country and practically every one of them read it. Um, Why do you think that happened? It's just, that was just organic that just sprang from the borders thing and the book being reviewed widely and, and it, it, yeah, it was just a sort of organic movement to read that book. Um, and you know, it was like, you have to go see the Avengers or you have to, you know, it was, it was just a cultural moment. And, um, my, my agent, um, kept calling up Algonquin and saying, you're not printing enough copies. You're not printing enough copies. Um, and beating them into printing another 50,000 copies. Um, so, and it's, you know, it still sells and people are still reading it. People are still arguing it over. And Lillian Hellman said that the success of your first work is um, almost as destructive as the failure of your second. 
um, and the and it's true that none of my books have sold. They've all sold well, but none of them has sold as well as that. And I remember thinking to myself when uh, Reliable Wife was doing so well and on the bestseller list and everything. I said, you better enjoy this because it's not going to happen again. It, you, it may you, never happen again. You knew that then. You weren't thinking like this is just the beginning. <laughs> well, people were saying to me, several people said to me, you know, every book you write after this is going to be a bestseller. And I thought, well, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't, I just didn't think that way. And um, I remember thinking what I just told you, which is to savor the moment because it might, might not come again. Now, a couple of things strike me about this. First of all, um, you talked about how it sold well in hardcover, but it didn't really take off uh, sales-wise until paperback. That's when things really like went crazy. Uh, so when you say it sold well in hardcover, can you give listeners like an idea of what that means? Like, What does it mean to sell well in hardcover? A hundred thousand copies. Okay. And then the other thing that strikes me about it is the fact that Algonquin passed the first time. And that every, like a lot of people passed. <laughs> and that this book went Everybody. Out, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, 40, you said it, 40 something publishers. And so I think that might be like a heartening lesson for people listening who are aspiring writers or who have a novel in the drawer that didn't find a home or who are struggling with rejections or whatever. Like people, even those entrusted with making these kinds of decisions and, you know, who presumably have good judgment in such matters can be dead wrong. Well, the, the truth is when you send a manuscript off to a publisher, you don't know who reads it. You know, it could be some, it could be the editor or it could be some 25-year-old um graduate student who is working hard as an editorial assistant to try to find that one P in the pod that's going to be a bestseller. I mean, and so it could have been read by some big editor. It could have been read by some 25-year-old. You, you don't really know. And the thing that happened to me was no, there was no agent who really sold my book for me. It was me saying to Chuck, who was the editor, why don't you read this book again? And so there was, there was no chance that it was going to be some editorial assistant who read the novel. It was Chuck himself. Hmm. Um, so one of the ways that novels get sold is a relationship between an editor and an agent. Um, that always helps. Um, and, um, and then there are an awful lot of good books that don't get published. And I think that there are an awful lot of bad books that do get published. So I think it's an unfair, um, context um from the get-go so when you 
have this me- the memoir publishes and then the novel and mm-hmm. at, like, at what age are you when this is all happening I was about 57 and maybe, well, no, let's say 56 and 58. And suddenly you're like a New York, you're like a best-selling novelist with a real career, like out of nowhere, close to the age of 60. Right. What did you, like, how did you handle it? Did you think to yourself, I've got more books in me? Was there any sense of panic? Were you, or were you like, did you ever consider just being like, well, uh, I've got some money now. I can just like coast and go back to Greece or. (laughs) No, no. I suddenly, I suddenly felt, um, that my voice had been freed and that I could write whatever I wanted for as long as I lived that I would be doing this until they put me in the grave. And it was really heartwarming to me. And, you know, you go back to your early your early adulthood, and, you know, you talk about never having really an explicit um, sense of ambition. Like, you knew you wanted to be creative, but you didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. But you also wrote a novel when you were 22. You kept, you tried again. You know, this was something that had been on your radar for a long time. Um, you must have felt like, I don't know, a sense of uh, vindication. Was that was that part of it, that you, that you were on the right track? Did you look backwards in your life and realize that, um, you know, any self-doubt that you might have had about pursuing um, writing as a profession had, uh, been confirmed, you know, that it was a, that it was a good instinct. Well, I felt that, a, I think I felt that a part of me that had been locked up for years and years and years had suddenly been let out of the cage. Um, and it was very freeing. It was very liberating. And, um, I felt that I had found a home in my readers' hearts and minds, and that when I wanted someplace to go, I could go there. I could make stories. I could um, say, you know, I think everybody really only has one or two things they want to say. And I suddenly knew in my case what they were and that I could say them over and over and over in different ways, trying to get ever closer to the true statement uh, in a narrative form of what I meant to say with my life. And what what are the things that you think you are trying to say over and over and over again? Well, I think one, these are not, well, these are from well, I think there are only two. No, I think there are three. I think that um, 
Sex is the first language. It is the most primal way we communicate. And we say things sexually that we can't say any other way. And it reveals things about us that nothing else reveals. Um, the second thing is that kindness brings us grace. Um, you know, the Dalai Lama said, um, be kind whenever possible. It is always possible. And I think I want to try to express that. And the third is that redemption in the truly religious sense awaits us all if we work toward it. And that if we work toward it, it can't be avoided. Um, and that's what I mean. That's what I mean to say. That that is what I mean to say with my life. And you know, like you uh, talk, you know, you you wrote about in your memoir um, difficulties and you know the difficult nature of your childhood and the abuse that you suffered. Um, but then there's also, you know, your adult life when you were uh, trying and failing to uh, publish, but also working in advertising uh, successfully, but maybe not uh, as fulfilled as you would have liked creatively. But underneath all of that, there was your own struggles with addiction, correct? Well, people have overblown my struggles with addiction. Oh, okay. I mean, yes, I drank too much and went to AA. Okay. Um, partially because I went to AA because I didn't want to repeat. It was shortly after my father died. Um, I didn't want to repeat my parents' fate. Um, and I was drinking more and more and making a fool of myself. Um, and I was doing more and more cocaine and... And there was also like cutting, like you doing a lot of cutting. Well, cutting is a whole other kind of addiction. And that happened when I was in my 30s. And it's something that abused children often do. Um, it is the addiction of choice of abused children. Um, and why is that? You would have to ask a psychiatrist, and I and I, to tell you the truth, have never done much to explore it psychiatrically. Um, I just did it, and then one day I stopped. And I don't know why I stopped. I just did. I think because I didn't want to die. And um, for another thing, I didn't want my parents. I, I felt 
that my parents had tried to kill me and that I didn't want to finish the job they started. It's also the reason I stopped drinking. It's also the reason I stopped doing drugs. That they had in so many ways tried to kill me and I had then in several ways tried to kill myself and uh, I just didn't want to become them and I didn't want to finish what they had started. Was there, a, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about uh, grace earlier and a lot of times when people stop using um, and change their lives, they speak of having like a moment of clarity or a moment of grace or some event in their life that is pivotal. Like, was there something like that or was it more of just a gradual realization and then one day you just said, I'm done? More the latter, I think. I think the grace, the, the moment of grace came later. Um, and I, and, um, and when the moment of grace came, I remember it quite well. I remember it with perfect clarity. Um, but it wasn't it wasn't when I stopped cutting myself and it wasn't when I stopped drinking or doing drugs. So, so what was it? <laughs> it's private. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so like during this, like the, these years of using, like how many years uh, was it about a decade? I think I remember reading. Maybe. And then you, it was the eighties, you know, we were all doing it. Right. So it really, so, it really was that crazy. Like New York in the eighties, making good money, like uh, lots of cocaine, lots of cocaine, lots of staying up late. You know, we would stay up late, and then we'd go home and sleep for an hour, and take a shower, and then we'd go to work again. But that's a candle that burns at both ends. Like that's, that's those are some rough days. Eventually. I mean, a friend of mine and I often talk that we're amazed that so few of us um, succumb to it. We're damaged by it in any way. Because it was a dangerous life. Yeah, not everybody survives that. Not at all. What, why do you think you did? Like, was there... Good, gene, good genes, I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean, because I'm just, I'm curious too, like sometimes people have um, some kind of spiritual foundation or they have support from family or friends or something that really um, keeps them afloat. Like, was it any... Well, it's funny, during all those years, I sat in my pew at St. Thomas Church in New York on Fifth Avenue every Sunday. What's the denomination? What is St. Thomas Church? It's an Episcopalian church. Ah, okay. So you've always been a churchgoer? Um, yes, yes. I mean, there was, there was the, there was a time. Yeah, no, no, I think it's pretty much true. I always have been. Yeah. See, I was raised Catholic and I never took to it as a kid. And my daughter now goes to an Episcopalian school. And so I've been exposed to like Episcopalian 
services and i'm like oh this is kind of nice this doesn't feel as heavy like <laughs> i maybe if i had well, been if i had been a, the episcopal church is like sort of catholicism light yeah mm-hmm. yeah exactly it's like it's not quite as uh, heavy-handed or uh, so, there's something kinder about it somehow more accepting well there's beautiful ritual to be found and i think that's where my belief in grace and kindness come from the 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 catholics in my way of thinking say if you screw up you're going to hell and the episcopalians say if you screw up come tell us about it and you get another chance right that's a big difference Just uh, going to underscore that because I was told when I was a kid, you know, it's like the whole cardinal sin thing, and you know, there are certain sins that are unforgivable, and it's just uh, it's a lot to put on a kid. Although I once went to confession in the Episcopal Church, which not many people do. Is it the same thing? Same setup? You're in like the booth with the priest? No, no, it's very rarely done. It's it it. It's one of the sacraments that we have, but that is rarely performed. Um, that is available to you if you want it, um, but it's not done in the little booth, and it's done in, uh, in my case, in the priest's office, face to face. And he, you sit down and he says his little bit, you know, and then he says, what is your sin? And you tell him and it goes from there. It's kind of like, it's like therapy, right? Yeah. Yes, in a way. And then in the end, um, he, he puts his hands on his on your head and blesses you and oh god such a great story i wish i could tell you um well, please please you, tell me I went to the I went to my priest at St. Thomas and I said I want to confess my sins and he said whatever he's supposed to say I can't remember. I was so fraught with anxiety. Um and he said um he said what is your sin? And I said, despair. And Mary Gordon once wrote a brilliant essay in the Times about the sin of despair as the eighth deadly sin because it is the one sin that removes you from the love of God. Um, And I never forgot it. So anyway, I said despair. And... um, he said instantly, 
He said, tell me about your childhood. And I did. And he cried. And um, then um, he said that um, he was going to give me a penance. Um, I told him that I now own the house that uh, I had grown up in and that I wouldn't um, go into my parents' bedroom because the bed in which the abuse had happened was still there um, and I wouldn't enter the room and so he said, I'm going to give you a penance. And I said, what? And he said, I want you to get in your car tomorrow. And he said, I want you to drive down to Virginia. And I want you to drag those mattresses out into the yard. And I want you to take that bed apart piece by piece. And I want you to hack it up with an axe and I want you to spread gasoline over it and set it on fire. And I did. You did it? Yep. Wow. What did the neighbors think? <laughs> well, we really had no neighbors. Oh, okay. We lived in, in the country and there were no neighbors. Well, and I'm seeing, so, you know, this uh, the house that you're describing and the fact that you own your, your uh, the house that you grew up in. I'm seeing at least a faint echo uh, in The Dying of the Light, your new novel, um, which is about a woman who uh, is trying to save, a family that's trying to save their enormous house. I don't know if you, uh, if the house you grew up in has any um, similarities, but am, am I wrong in that assessment? Well, only the houses, the houses are not at all similar, but I think that in her almost suicidal attempt to save the house, um, there is a certain similarity, yes. Mm. Um, it's funny how our things can own us, you know? Well, a friend of mine wrote um, a book about the things she inherited from her parents and then having to have an auction and sell some of them. And I said, to, I said to her, I said, you know, the theme of this book is if somebody gave us the stuff we inherited, would we really want it? And Deanna in the book is really sort of stuck that way. She's living in a mausoleum. But she desperately ruins her life in order to hold on to it. And many Virginians have um, to keep the family place going. Um, and I'm not saying that there's a ghost in every bedroom. I'm just saying that we have very strong attachments to family houses. Ultimately, I sold mine. And 
And, and um, may I interrupt real quick? You had mentioned earlier that your parents had disinherited you after an early attempt at a novel that they had read, at least in part. Um, how did you wind up with the house? I bought it. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> so it wasn't given to you? I bought it from my grandmother and before did, she died. And did you buy it to, with the idea of living in it, or did you buy it because you just did, couldn't bear the thought of it? Um, being lost to some other family. I, this is really sick. I bought it and gave it to my parents for their lifetime. And they didn't even say thank you. Hmm. When we came back from the lawyer's office and the bank, and I said, well, it's yours now for life. Um... My mother said, Chad, fix me a drink. And they didn't even say, they didn't even say thank you. And I had just bought them a house. After, after the childhood I'd gone through, I did everything, everything possible to make them like me again. And it ended with me buying them a house. And the deal was that they were to return the house. They were to keep up the house in the state in which they bought it, in which they received it. And, of course, they didn't. And it, in the course of the 10 or 12 years they lived there, like Deanna, it fell completely into ruin. And I spent the next years of my life and every single penny I had restoring it to some kind of habitability. So I, like Deanna, sacrificed my life for that house. And then it was really beautiful. It was so beautiful. And... Everybody loved it. It's just a magical house. And what's so, what's, so, what, what's so magical about it? Like, can you describe like, what's the architecture? Like, what, like, can you describe it? Just so it's, we can a, get... it's, a, it's a stone and clabbered Miller's house that was built in 1787. Um, it's kind of like a very big cottage, sort of. Um, and it's set in a sort of valley by a creek. It's called Whistle Creek. Um, and I loved it with all my heart. I really did. And the day I sold it was practically the happiest day of my life. Just a release. Yeah. And Just to know that I didn't have to worry about it all the time. Yeah, it's like making me think of this story about, uh, it's like an old Buddhist uh, fable about how the Buddha is like sitting in a field with some of his disciples and this guy comes by, like he, this guy comes out of the forest and he's got this really worried look on his face and he says, have you seen my cows? Like I lost my cows. 
Uh, they ran away. I'm looking for them. They're my livelihood. And the Buddha's like, I'm really sorry. Like, we didn't see any. You might want to, you know, go in the other direction and check that way. And then after the guy walks away and leaves, the Buddha turns to his disciples and says, like, see how lucky you are? You don't have any cows. <laughs> but the only problem I have with that tale is that the Buddha and his disciples didn't, like, try to, you know, help the guy find his cows. Right. <laughs> it's a little cold. Like, why don't you get up and you know, help the guy track him down. But the point is, you know, that, like I said, the, the things we, we think we need can often, uh, own us in a way and to unburden ourselves of them is, is, uh, can be seriously liberating. And that the things we most love can be an albatross around our necks. Well, and I, you know, it's like the, there's also like the, I, I can't help but think of the house and the role that it played in your life um, from childhood all the way up through, uh, you know, the time that you sold it as having this enormous symbolic uh, meaning in your, in your psyche, right? I mean, yeah. it, it had to have just carried so much weight, like way more than say my childhood home or the average person's childhood home. Like it it was uh, defining, right? It had so much to do with who you are, um, what you've become, the work that you do. Everything is sort of uh, rooted in that place. Absolutely. Absolutely. And when I think about you and, you know, this uh, amazing career that you've built for yourself as a writer of, well, I guess both nonfiction and fiction, but primarily fiction, um, you know, in your fifties and beyond, I, I'm curious if you ever think about your identity now as a, as a writer and as an artist and whether or not those inclinations are ingrained in you genetically, or if the circumstances of your environment, uh, as a child and the circumstances of what happened to you as a child, um, formed you as a writer? Like, do you have, do you have a sense of how it happened? Like, do you, do you feel strongly that it's nature or do you think nurture was, uh, more consequential? I, I think both were true. My father was a writer. Uh, my brother was a journalist. Um, my grandfather was a journalist. Um, my sister-in-law is a writer. Um, so my great-grandfather was a novelist. Um, so the family is riddled with writers. Um, but the nurture part is has to do with the kind of writer I am and what it is I want to say, which is, I think, very different from what my brother would say if he were a novelist or anybody else. Well, and I'm interested too, because you mentioned earlier that when we were talking about the, the, um, like the reverberating themes that, uh, you know, appear in all of your work. And one of the first, I think the first thing you mentioned was that sex is the primary human language. Um, and then coupled with that, when I was prepping for this interview and reading about your life, uh, it was noted in multiple interviews or reviews or essays uh, about you that uh, you live a fairly solitary existence, uh, and yet you're noted for being able to write intimacy so well. 
Um, I'm curious if, if that's ever, is, is that something that you're aware of or is there, is that overblown too in the way that maybe the talk about, uh, you know, your struggles with alcohol and drugs was, uh, in your opinion, overblown? Uh-huh. I got that once in a while. <laughs> But the, um, but the writing life is by nature. I mean, solitude uh, is of benefit. No, I do live alone, and uh, strangely, I live more and more alone as I get older, and I don't like it. Um, but I don't. I don't know. You know. You don't attract people when you're 69 the way you did when you were 29. You just don't. Um, I don't know what will happen. I love this new book. Um, and how long did it take you to write it? I'm curious, too, like about your writing process. Um, well, for some, but for... Is, it takes me forever to think them up. Um, it takes me two years to think them up and it takes me, I don't know, two years to write them. Um, do you do an outline? No, never. But you do like, like how, like, I guess in the two years of, of creative prep work before you actually get down to the business of writing it, um, you're, you're plotting it out in your head. Yeah. It's like, I tell myself a story, um, and in the beginning, the story is very unformed, but I tell it to myself over and over and over and over and over. And, um, like when I'm going to bed or when I'm, uh, in the grocery store or doing laundry or whatever, um, I just keep repeating the story over and over and over and I get obsessed with it. And so in the end, there's nothing else. And then, suddenly I know that it's time to start writing it. And that happens when what? When you've just, you've worn yourself out or when you know the end? No, when I know the first sentence. Oh, and that's, and that's a, that's the same for each of your books. That's the way it's worked. Yeah. You get the first sentence and you're off and running. I think so. Yes. Yes. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I'm starting to think now because you talked about, um, you know, uh, is it Elaine Markson, your agent mm -hmm. and how, uh, she didn't think that bitter cold was a good title. Right. And then, you know, it gets changed eventually to a reliable wife. And, and by the way, I don't know if I ever got the story of when that change actually happened because she took it out as bitter cold. Correct. But then you went to Chuck and suggested he reread it. And at some, at what point did you get no, the? No, no, no. She, we, she, we, she took it out to some people as bitter cold, and then we switched and okay. took it out to the rest as reliable wife. Oh, okay, because I, I feel like, I mean, just uh, like thinking about a lot of bestsellers have the word wife in them uh, in the title or. I'm trying to think of what the other ones are, but they're, they're, I've read essays about this online, you know, that there are certain like buzzwords and titles that tend to uh, go hand in hand with better sales, like not always, but often or whatever, often enough to, you know, merit somebody writing an essay about it. Do you ever think back to that decision and how fateful it was? Like, do you think that had the novel oh, been... Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, just one, like three words changed quite a bit for you. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, I didn't really, I didn't know it at the time, but inherently I knew that she was right, that a reliable wife was a better title. Yeah, well, uh, what was the great, the great Gatsby? I think Fitzgerald wanted to call it like, what was it like, high bouncing lover or something? Just like yeah, maybe. I can't remember what it was, but it was a pretty awful title. Yeah, or like you know, high hatted, you know, something just really very nineteen twenties, uh, yeah. very boozy and and just wrong. So titles matter. Sometimes it's good to to take good advice. Yes, it's always good to listen to advice any advice now do you you say that you go through this two-year plotting process and then you eventually get to where you have the first line and then you begin drafting um for somebody who started i guess you know you wrote a novel in your 20s and you wrote another another one i, I guess in your 30s is that right that was the greece yes, adventure yes. so you'd had some experience but did you have to learn process at all did you turn to outside sources or take a class or read books or was it something that you just kind of had an intuitive grasp on both as well, I've, I mean I've read voraciously my whole life um, and I suppose I learned a lot that way hmm. um, but I never took a class um, and I'm awfully glad I didn't um why is that? Well, I think writing school writers all sound alike. Um, they all come out sounding like their teachers. Um, and um, I don't know. I really don't rewrite a lot. Really? So uh, when you draft, that's it, pretty much? Well, I, I tend to rewrite as I go along. Uh, I'll write a page and rewrite it and then move on. Do you write longhand or you type? No, I work on a computer. Um, so editing is fun. It's like Pac-Man, you know. Do you, like yeah, I'm always curious when uh, when writers get into the editorial process. Like, how much is addition and how much is subtraction? Uh, like, is most of your editing cutting or is it most of it adding to what you already have down? Um, I don't know. There's some of each. Um, but the. Um, the addition is harder than the subtraction. <laughs> well, uh, you've clearly had an incredible success, and it's inspiring to learn about, and uh, it's great to get to shine a light on your new book and the book club, and just great to get to meet you over the transom. I, I really appreciate your time and your generosity in talking to me, and uh, I wish you well on uh, whatever comes next. Are you working on a new book? Um, yes, I am. So what phase of, of the process are we in? Are, are we talking to ourselves at the grocery store or are we actually drafting? Yes, we're talking to ourselves <laughs> at the grocery store. <laughs> All right, Robbie. Well, listen, thank you very much. Uh, but it takes place in Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. Well, we'll be on the lookout for it. And uh, once again, my thanks. I wish you the best. Thank you, sir. And I will um, 
hope for the best myself, as always. Okay, that's Robert Gulrich. His novel is called The Dying of the Light. It is available now from Harper. It is the official July pick of the TNB Book Club, Robert Gulrich. Interesting guy, interesting life and career. It should give people hope if you're out there and you feel like, you know, it's too late or something. This guy's doing it. He didn't start until he was, what, in his 50s? Best-selling author of many books. Making a living at it. You can follow him on uh, Twitter, at Whistle Creek. I believe he also has a Facebook page. Once again, the novel is called The Dying of the Light. Go get your copy. It's available now from Harper. If you're interested in the TNB Book Club, just go to thenervousbreakdown.com. If you would like to support this show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Thanks, as always, to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you want to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. I forgot to tell you about Home Depot. I realized that. It's not that good of a story. I mean, I was just like searching for something to talk about. Well, I had to get like some new bathroom fixtures, faucet. So I took Twiggy up there. When you go, to, I don't know if it's like this in your town, but when you go to Home Depot in Los Angeles, there's like a hundred guys in the parking lot who are trying to get work, like doing uh, repairs or installation of, uh, you know, whatever it is that you buy, a sink, a faucet, an air conditioner. So you got to sort of wade through all that. You go into the store. I brought Twiggy just because I felt like it would be a good field trip for her. She behaved herself. What am I even talking about? I just feel like this is, I'm just reaching. I should stop talking about Home Depot right now. (laughs) 